Good morning. So I want to begin with a little story. Uh, I, uh, I grew up terrified that the world was going to end at any moment. My, my home, uh, my childhood home, was a few miles away from Strategic Air Command in eastern Nebraska. It was a massive military installation that was built to coordinate a world-ending atomic strike against the USSR. Our town's post office served as a bomb shelter, and in school there was always a Red Dawn-inspired fear of World War III. Add to this a steady diet of science fiction and the occasional tornado siren, and you get a kind of pessimistic view of the future. When I was probably 12 years old, a well-meaning evangelist came to my church to teach the youth that the real threat to the world wasn't the Russians or cyborgs or aliens, but the second coming of Jesus. To drive this point home through the media of VHS, my youth group was shown a cheesy evangelical movie called A Thief in the Night. The film begins with an ominous quote by Jesus taken out of Matthew's gospel, which is an exact parallel of the reading from this morning in Mark. It said, keep a sharp lookout for you do not know when I will come at evening or at midnight at early dawn or late break. Don't let me find you sleeping. As the text fades on the screen, we see a young woman waking up to a news broadcast on the radio. She learns of a massive event where millions of people have just disappeared from the earth. Frightened, she runs around her home, calling after her husband, only to find his electric razor buzzing in the bathroom sink. Her husband has been raptured, taken up into heaven. And in terror, she realizes that she's been left behind. The movie was intended to scare its audience into believing that at any moment, Jesus was going to come back, take his followers into heaven, and leave behind the rest of us to suffer during a period of torment called the Great Tribulation. If you didn't have a right relationship with Jesus, not only did you have hell to worry about in the afterlife, but the threat of being abandoned by those you love in this life. Well-meaning pastors who were trained by well-meaning but wrong biblical scholars and theologians use the fear of the rapture and the end of the world to bring people to Christ. The narrative was powerful and shaped nearly every aspect of my young life. I can remember losing my mom once in a Costco parking lot. I was convinced that she had been raptured and that I'd been left behind and I ran and I ran around with tears streaming down my face until I finally found her collecting her shopping cart and assuring me that I wasn't left behind. The so-called rapture theology was the product of a 19th century theological movement called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism was an approach to reading the Bible that tried to find direct equivalencies between Western history and biblical prophecy. One goal of dispensationalism was to use the apocalyptic sayings in the Bible to predict how and when Jesus was coming back. This theology was a major feature of mid 19th century American revival preaching. And while it was first limited to a few fringe religious groups, by the mid 20th century, it had made its way into mainstream American evangelicalism and Pentecostalism. For people like me, who were raised in these churches in the 70s and 80s and 90s, talk of the rapture and the end times was a staple of religious life. And even today, there are tens of millions of Christians who continue to be taught this apocalyptic view of the world as it's reflected by the widely popular Left Behind series of books and films. And while it may seem 
that what you believe about the end of the world might not have much of an influence on how you live your life? Dispensationalism has had a direct impact on US, US foreign policy regarding the statehood of Israel. The reestablishment of Israel is regarded as a necessary step to ushering in the second coming, as well as our country's stance on climate change and environmental protection. Why care for the earth if it's going to end soon? The theological word that we use to describe all of this end of the world stuff is eschatology, which means the study of the last things. Advent, ironically, begins the church year by holding in tension Jesus's first coming in Bethlehem and his second coming in glory. It is a deeply eschatological season that is full of prayers and readings and hymns that give us pause to think about these big picture end of the world kinds of questions. The church has always had an eschatology. Of course, there's plenty in scripture about the coming kingdom of God. These themes are synthesized by the fourth century in the language of the creeds, where we confess our belief that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Eschatology was intended to provide a sense of comfort and serve as a source of hope, encouraging Christians to trust that not even death can separate us from God's love. By the Middle Ages, the European church further unpacked eschatology into the study of the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, which reflected what was believed at the time to be the four possible final states of the soul in afterlife. As the medieval church's practices of Advent were coming together, it was not uncommon for sermons that were preached during the four Sundays of Advent to focus on the four last things, four Sundays, four things. Preachers have always loved a good series. And as if preaching about death and judgment and hell during the longest nights of the year wasn't scary enough, it wasn't uncommon for these churches to also be decorated with vividly painted doom paintings on their walls, which in gory and terrifying detail would depict the consequences of the afterlife. I think there is a single word that can bring together the eschatologies of 20th century evangelical Americans and medieval Europeans, fear. Whether it is fear that Jesus is coming back and gonna leave you orphaned in a Costco parking lot, or fear that you weren't adequately righteous in this life so that your soul will be condemned to the torments of purgatory or hell in the next life. In either case, eschatology has been used as an instrument of fear. And I'm pretty sure, given that the command fear not is uttered nearly a hundred times in the Bible, that teaching people to fear through eschatology is probably not what God has in mind for us. So in this eschatological season of Advent, I want to be able to see the coming of Jesus as a symbol of hope and not as an instrument of fear. So to move from fear to hope, we start by reading scripture anew. Eschatologies of fear emerge almost entirely from an incorrect reading of the Bible. Again, well-meaning pastors and priests trained by well-meaning scholars and teachers simply get it wrong sometimes when they read verses like the ones that we read this morning from Mark in, in, in ways that promote fear. So let's go to Mark 13 and read Mark without fear. Mark 13 is positioned at the hinge point in Jesus's story. From chapters 1 to 11, Mark's Jesus is busy healing, feeding, and teaching largely in the north of Israel in and around his home in Galilee. 
in chapter 12, Jesus heads to Jerusalem where he has activity in chapters 12 and 13 centers around the temple. In chapters 14 to 16, Mark then tells the story of Jesus's journey to the cross. So immediately before our reading this morning, Jesus has just finished teaching and worshiping with his disciples in the temple. As he's walking out of the temple gates, an unnamed disciple comes to him and points out the grandeur of this enormous building, the temple. In response, Jesus offers several cryptic yet profoundly disturbing statements about the future, the future of the temple's destruction. He says, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon the other. It will all be thrown down. This would have been shocking at the time for anyone who had heard this. The temple in Jerusalem was a religious and cultural center for Judaism. It was the place where heaven and earth intersected. Even today, visitors to the temple are met with signs that call for reverence because observant Jews believe that this is still the spot where God's presence dwells on earth. In AD 30, when Jesus would have said these words, the temple that Jesus is worshiping at had only just a few decades earlier been expanded and enhanced by Herod. It was at the peak of both its cultural significance and its aesthetic grandeur. The very thought of it being torn down would have seemed both laughable and terrifying. So to get a sense of how totally destabilizing Jesus's prophecies would have been to someone connected to Israel and to the temple in the early to mid first century, allow yourself to imagine all the positive feelings that are evoked by places like the Vatican or Mecca or Washington DC or London or New York or Paris. And now imagine that someone, someone who you have come to know as God in the flesh tells you that within your lifetime, these places will all be destroyed. More than destruction of a beloved cultural icon, it would feel almost like the end of the world. So just 40 years after Jesus utters this warning to his disciples, at the height of the first Jewish and Roman war in AD 70, the soon-to-be Roman emperor Titus and the full force of the Roman military break through the walls of Jerusalem, slay millions of inhabitants, and raise the temple to the ground. The stones of Herod's temple are which were toppled by Roman uh, soldiers, still litter the perimeter of the Temple Mount today, like enormous Lego bricks on the floor of a child's bedroom. In Mark 13, Jesus predicts the end of the world, but it's not the end of the world for us. These words were for his original disciples, and while they would have undoubtedly sparked fear into their hearts, it soon became a source of great hope and consolation. By the time that Mark's gospel was being read widely by Christians, the temple had already likely been destroyed and Jesus's apocalyptic warnings weren't intended by Mark to spark fear about Jesus's second coming uh, or about missing out on the rapture or uh, not being good enough to get into heaven. These words, like almost all of Christian eschatology are actually intended to ignite a flame of hope in the hearts of those who follow Jesus. Jesus is telling us and his, first, and his followers, that even in the scariest and longest nights of the year, we can place our hope in Jesus, who has been with us in the past and will be with us into the future. Many of you have received an Advent kit from this church, and we're encouraging our community to engage in new practices and rituals which will help us to mark Advent together. 
Some of these include setting up a crash or having advent calendars that count down the days until Christmas. There's also the practice of lighting a candle or a series of candles on the nights and days of Advent. So why do we mark the nights and days of Advent by lighting candles? Because hope extinguishes fear the same way that a candle extinguishes the night. This Advent, I encourage you to practice hope by following along with us in the prayers and practices of Advent keeping by retelling that familiar story of God's faithfulness to God's people, the story of God's love expressed through creation, the story of God's call to Abraham and Sarah, the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt, and most of all, in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Our hope for the future is rooted in the same God who has been faithful to us in the past. That God who was born in Bethlehem is the same God who created the world sustains us today, and will be with us until the end of time. Light a candle, extinguish the fear, and may hope in God bring light into our homes this Advent season. Amen.